Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we explore the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, and here with me in the studio, my friend and this show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. What is up? <laughs> Nate, it's good to... It's good to be back here midweek, uh, a little little past midweek. Bonus podcast, I like it. <laughs> a little bonus, yeah. We've Let's got do it. We've got a few thoughts to finish from from last time. We didn't quite have time to cover, and uh, and then we a few stories from the pseudepigrapha, and uh, just kind of some some closing pseudepigrapha? thoughts. Pseudepigrapha, pseudepigrapha. Man, I think that what I've been waiting for all week is to go through the pseudepigrapha. Good old pseudepigrapha. In fact, I've been waiting for this all my life. <laughs> There's Sometimes when I'm down, I just think to myself, you know what I need? I need some passages from the pseudepigrapha. Uh, and you know what's uh, what I like about the pseudepigrapha? Tell me. As, as, as many books as I've read, it's, 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 it's been very interesting. Some crazy, some cool, some make sense, some don't, but... I don't feel like I'm wasting any time reading begats because I have not seen a single begat in the pseudepigrapha. What? <laughs> you want to know something? I take back everything I've said about the pseudepigrapha. <laughs> whatever, man. Let's go. All meat. All right. Whatever. Let's do this. <laughs> Although some of the meat might be rank. All right. Might be rotten. Rotten meat. Might might be a little. Might be a little off. Okay. Um, starting off. Uh, last last week we were covering Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, let's see, eighty nine through ninety two, and in ninety there's a, a, a verse, verse twenty five that um, my my family we were reading through Doctrine and Covenants, and we came across this verse at a time in our lives where it, it just felt like we were stretched a little too thin, and maybe there's there's people that can relate with me on that. It's it's good to help people, and and sometimes you get to the point where you're almost helping too much, and there's not enough time to balance things, and you just feel like you're you're you're, you're a little overburdened. So when I read this, it, it was interesting. It says, "Let your families be small." And you're like, "Wait a second that that seems counter what what the church has been all about, right?" And and you look at it. Okay, well, let's keep reading. Let your families be small small, especially mine aged servant, Joseph Smith Sr. And you're like, okay, he's obviously not having more kids. This is not what this council is talking about. And it finishes as pertaining to those who do not belong to your families. And and so that, it kind of hit me. And I feel like sometimes we can get caught in a trap where we're helping so much, it's coming at the expense of our own family. We're not able to take care of them or be with our kids as much as we would like because we're getting stretched a little bit thin. So this counsel and this scripture, it was something I wanted to highlight because it was something that, that meant a lot to my family as, as we were looking at this and finding out how we need to prioritize. And, and I, hesitate, I hesitate saying too much because I love it when people ask me for help and I love being able to help. And, and so by saying this, I'm not saying that we that I don't want to help anyone out. Please keep asking me whenever, if there's something I can do, I'd be happy to help. But it also teaches me to help balance that where sometimes I need to say no or, or sometimes I just need to be aware of my schedule. And... I guess uh, just just to wrap it up. <laughs> and I don't know. What are you laughing at? I, I don't know. 
I just I just got lost. I'm, I'm just oh okay, absolutely lost. I looked back there and you were looking at me and you were like laughing. I was like, did I do something? Nope, nope. I just lost my mind. It, you know, it happens from time to time. It happens when when you're chasing a thought and and all of a sudden it eludes you and you're just staring blankly and, right. and the only thing you can do is laugh. Okay, yeah, that's. Did I, you find I, yourself? No, I think I'm still lost. United but... Order. <laughs> uh... Ah, I got it. All right, here we are. Just, just to wrap it up on, on let your families be small outside of your family. Sometimes you might think, you know, I'm not helping that many people outside of my family. If somebody's asking you for help and you think it's just one person, why am I so hesitant to help or why do I feel like I'm, I'm overburdened? But think about this. Outside of your family, you also have a work family, so to speak, and people that you're helping there. You have your callings and people that you're helping in the ward, and you have responsibilities to all sorts of people, the the, the PTA or doing things at school or doing things for your kids. I mean, you think about our families outside of our family, if you will, and, and it gets pretty large pretty quick. So so sometimes when one person is constantly asking or you have something coming up, and it might not seem like you're having a large family outside of your own, but when you weigh everything in, you realize that your family might be a little bit larger than you thought. Cool. All right. Thanks. Thanks for your patience. No sweat. Let's let's keep going. Let's keep rolling. 92 uh, is a section. It's just a couple verses. It talked about the United Order. United Order was kind of code name for, for the United Firm. The only reason I wanted to highlight or talk about this is in the early days of the church, the, the church had a couple businesses. They had the, the mercantile, they had the printing press, and they were supposed to be using the money that the businesses made from selling uh, mercantile goods, uh, selling print from Doctrine and Covenants of the Book of Mormon. They're supposed to take that revenue and use it to support the church, and not just the church, but also support those who were doing the, the work for the church. Joseph Smith, especially in this section, it's, it's adding Frederick G. Williams to that list of people that were going to be supported. And so as we look at the church today and the church's businesses, and and what the church does with Deseret Industries with uh, with uh, Deseret uh, it, it, what what do they have their investment Deseret group Book. Deseret I Book I think they're actually independent technically whatever church owned businesses they have if you look at that and say what what's going on in the church why does the church have businesses this is not something new this was something going back to the 1830s right with the beginning of the church this has been part of the model with the Lord trying to find a way to help support his his laborers as they built the kingdom of God, and how do you find that financial support to build the kingdom? So I, I just thought that was interesting. Um, as we were talking about Doctrine and Covenants 89 last week, and we were talking about the the sanctity of life, this is something that's come up a few times, but I think we talked about blessing the food, and in just these last couple of days, I was really putting some thought into that and thinking about my prayers as I bless the food and what it means to bless the food. And that phrase, bless the food, what what's the purpose or point of blessing the food? And Obviously, to nourish our bodies and do us the good that we need. To nourish and strengthen our bodies—that that's a phrase we use quite often, right? Is yeah, that the that point, what it though? Obviously, is though. <laughs> isn't the food going to nourish us either way? I mean, look, n- no, like, dude, when you're at um, a act an activity and somebody brings out the cookies. Clearly, if you don't bless them to nourish and strengthen your body, it'll just be sugar, and it'll be bad for your body. But because you blessed it, 
we all know it nourishes and strengthens your body. I don't think the point of blessing is to convert starch or sugars into proteins and uh, <laughs> what <laughs> and vitamin C and what? And, <laughs> as, I, I, I think the food is going to nourish us. That's the point of eating it. It does that. That's its role. I don't know that blessing it so much is about nourishing and strengthening us. I th- that inherently is going to happen whether we bless the food or not, right? We put it in. We digest it. It goes into our blood system. That's going to happen inevitably. And That's what you say. Well, in light of what we were talking about last week, it made me think from a different perspective. Maybe we're not blessing the food as much as... The, the food we eat as much as the, the soul or the life that gave its life for us to sustain us, the energy that... We're giving bl- thanks for that. Yeah, we're grateful for the animal. Please bless this animal that gave its life for me. Yeah, I'm totally, I'm totally down with that. Maybe blessing the food is blessing and showing that gratitude and asking that the Lord blesses whatever life is no longer alive because we are using it to sustain it. I, I don't know, it's just kind of an interesting I, thought. Yeah, I totally appreciate that. I appreciate that. I was just giving you a hard time. Just just tweaking perspective a little. All right. Now Okay, now the reason for the bonus. The the, the the content we've all been waiting for. Pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha, baby. And I decided to jump right into the book of the Cave of Treasures. Of course you did. <laughs> I I find this one I don't know, this this one to me is fascinating. And, and this is going to take you right down your alley there, Nate. I can't the, wait. The world of music. You're, you're more of an expert than I. Can't wait. So here's, here's a story. I'll give you a little bit of context. The book of the Cave of Treasures is retelling the story from uh, the creation, Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, all the way down into to the, the coming of Christ, the importance of Christ's coming. So it's it's almost like a, a retelling of the Old Testament, just with different context and, and different details that it's providing us with. So it gives us kind of a peek at, at at what people thought of these stories, and maybe there was different sources that they were using that there's providing more context that it's just kind of interesting. And and the story goes that Adam and Eve, after they were cast out of the garden, they lived up in a mountain. And their descendants lived in the mountain with them, and they became the sons of God. And so here you have these these sons of God living in the mountain, and Cain gets cast out for killing Abel. He's living down in the valley, and this is the story of of the time of Jared. So Jared is a, a one of the sons of going down the line, Adam, and then you had Seth, and all you're begatting till you get to Jared, not too far down from the list. But in the time of Jared, and it's interesting because the Hebrew name Jared means to go down. And and this is the time that the sons of God go down out of the mountain and what brings them down into the valley. So here we go. I'm just going to read a little bit this, um, and, and hopefully it's it's all right. So this is the descendants of Cain. This is Jubal. They had some crazy Jubal. names. Good old Jubal. Can't wait. Jubal made the flutes, <laughs> zithers, and pipes. I don't know what zithers are. Nate, you're the music guy. Zithers? It's an instrument. It is? Yeah. You've heard of zithers? Yes. What do zithers do? I'm pretty sure that it's a, I'm pretty sure it's like a, it's got a strings and you like turn like a little crank on. Let me just double check. Z. I'm impressed. Z-I-T-H-E-R, I believe. Z-I-T-H-E-R. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Oh wow! Yeah, it, it's like a, uh, um, it's like an auto harp. Yeah, I swear my grandparents had one of those. Yeah, I have two. 
Yeah, zithers. Okay. Well, one's an auto harp. The other one is a zither, yeah. Well, Jubal, apparently, these have been around for a long time because he made the flutes, the zithers, and pipes. I think that this, I think that, again, they're, like, big in, like, um, Asia. Like, it's uh, um, still, I think, used a lot in various, you know, like, Chinese, Japanese, maybe even, like, Southeast Asian stuff. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure that that's true. I'm I'm pretty sure I've played it a few times at my grandparents' house. It says it's used especially in in European folk music, Central European. So okay, yeah, Central, maybe a little Eastern European. All right. It was big in the Chinese dynasty from uh, two twenty one to two o six BC. Wow. There you go. See, I knew it, dude. Well, Jubal, there's there's his contribution to uh, society. Okay. Can't wait. Thanks, Jubal. Thanks, Jubal. Jubal made the flutes, the zithers, and the pipes. And this is where it gets interesting. And the demons entered into them and dwelt within them. Whenever they blew them, the demons made music from within the flutes. Now. Oh, man. Somewhere, somewhere, President Boyd K. Packer is just like, I knew it. (laughs) Hang with me. It gets worse. Okay. Tubal this, is, this is great. We need to do this more often. <laughs> Tubal Cain made cymbals, yeah. rattles, yeah. and tambourines. Dude. Yeah, all the percussion. Yeah, he's the percussion guy. Tubal Cain is the percussion guy. Okay. When lewdness and debauchery oh, had, yeah. Oh, yeah, had waxed great among the children of Cain, and when they had no other goal than debauchery, they did not compel anybody to work, nor did they have a chief or guide. Rather, they were eating, drinking, gluttony, yep. drunkenness, yep, yep. music, yep. dance. My favorite. Diabolical jesting. <laughs> <laughs> not, not normal jesting, mate. <laughs> this is diabolical yes! jesting. Oh my god, dude! That's the name of my new band, Diabolical Jesting. In fact, honestly, I, hold on, I'm writing this down. This is honestly, this is my next music project, Diabolical Jesting. Writing this. It down. sounds like it sounds like kind of a crazy little music scene. Dude, it sounds like it sounds like a dope party to me. <laughs> All right, Diabolical Jesting, <laughs> laughter which is pleasurable to the demons. Of course it is. Now, now we've talked about laughter before and loud laughter, and and maybe this gets us kind of this idea that, that there is a healthy laughter and an, an okay laughter, and it's it's good to have fun. But this is a diabolical jesting oh, and this... laughter of a sense that uh, it's it's laughter that is pleasurable to the demons. Dude, diabolical jesting. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy about this. Okay, okay, this is great. Keep going. This is my favorite. This is my favorite verses of anything. All right. Better than begatting, right? Oh, for sure better than begatting. (laughs) Okay, here we go. And the lewd voices of men... Oh, this is where it gets pretty crazy. And the lewd voices of men braying after women. When Satan found himself on occasion through the wrongdoing, he was exceedingly glad that thereby he could make uh, descend and bring down the children of Seth from the holy mountain. For they had made a replacement by God for the rank which had fallen and were called of angelic people, the sons of God, and the blessed David sings concerning, I have called you gods and the sons of the Most High, all of you. So he says this, this 
let me just make sure I'm giving you this uh, context here. For they had been made, um, he wanted to bring them down. The people that were on the mountain uh, were called gods, the son of the most high, all of you, the, the sons of God. And, and there's a verse in Genesis that does not make a lot of sense. It says, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and, and that's what this is going to reference. And you look at that and say, what, are, are women like subpar and, and men get to be gods and women are not? Like, what's going on? It's not that men or women are different. It's that the population that lived on the mountain were called the sons of God, where the daughters of men were the ones that lived down in the valley, at least according to this text. So I'm going to keep going. It says, now now it gets even more obscene. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it, it's uh, it's a little bit uh, descriptive here. So my apologies. It says, since debauchery ruled among the children of Cain, women shamelessly ran after men. They mingled with one another like a flock in agitation, and thus they openly fornicated in front of each other without shame. Two or three men fell upon one woman, and likewise the woman ran after the men. Abominable spirits entered into the woman, so that they were even more furious in their impurity than their daughters. Fathers and sons committed abominations with their mothers and sisters, and neither did the sons know their fathers, nor could the daughters distinguish their sons. For Satan had been made chief and guide of their camp." When they raved in diabolical merrymaking, they played flutes at the highest pitch and plucked the zithers with demonic skill and strength. Then the sound of tambourines and rattles, which they beat with evil spirit skill. And the noise of laughter was heard high in the air and went up into the holy mountain. So, it sounds like when the neighbors needed to call the cops because my band practice was too loud. That's exactly where we're going with this. <laughs> That is exactly where we are going with this. It's a true story, by the way. Um, and Nate, I mean, you, you, you're a music expert here. Oh yeah, expert. You, I, I, I like that they they talk about music having the, the this influence, and and you know, there's different music for different moods. Totally. And and some music you use to set a stage to yep. to inspire. Yep. If music didn't inspire acts then why in the world would they give people in the military a drum instead of a gun? Oh, sure. No, sure. The, I mean, the thing is, is every single... We we talk about this all the time, both on the podcast and in just our little private conversations. Mm -hmm. And that is, things can be a tool or a weapon. You know, things can, things can build or break. The same thing can build or break. We told all the time about how the internet is the, like, has opened up the entire world and, and given the world the opportunity of so many blessings and has just, like, destroyed lives and continues to just, like, rot people's brains and destroy the world at the same time, right? Absolutely, yes. I, it is, the music, music is a funny thing. Music is a funny thing, let's just say that. You can, you can, you have people on the extremes make a case for this idea that again like some old talks that you've probably read from kind of a hardline generation which is if you listen to anything but this Hell. you're evil 
Like it's it. That's there's only one purpose for this, and that is just for destruction. You're like, okay, that's that's just so absolutely not true. Right? I mean, it's, you say you can say what you want, and that's just not true. And then you have people that say, oh no, you just listen to whatever you want to. It's it doesn't you know it doesn't affect your mood enough that it actually makes a difference. Whatever, and it's like, well, no, that's not true either. And like with everything, there is nuance and. For some people, certain certain types of music do certain things and that doesn't for other people. And like all art, some of it works for some people and some of it doesn't work for some people. And trying to draw hard lines between that stuff is it's silly. I mean, truly, it's silly. Uh, you're, you're, I, I I like what you said. There's a lot of wisdom in that. And I do love, though, by the way, that the pipes. And like the highest pitch, I mean, it's just, it's funny because like, Shrill. to be totally honest with you, nobody likes listening to the pipes anyways. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, you bagpipists. Like we can do one or two songs, but they're all in the same key. It's like just droning the whole time. So sorry, pipists. Um, sorry, pipers. Um, and nobody likes hearing super high notes anyways. So it's like, yeah, okay, okay I guess I can get down with that. When, when uh, somebody's learned how to play something and... It's just squealing and shrieking at high pitches. I'm like, yeah, the devil's probably in that. Feels well, like it to me. And and I love I love approaching this topic coming fresh off of Doctrine and Covenants 89 because you look at Doctrine and Covenants 89 and 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 we're not talking about very uh, very well defined, right? As we if we talk about something that's a little bit ambiguous and and the and the choice is or the option how does that make you feel? What does that do for you? And and I think the same thing with music. It's hard to be very specific and say, no, listen to this or listen to that. And the church is not about coming in and taking your agency. And and God is not about coming in and trying to define everything that is good or bad. What does that do for you? How does that make you feel? Are, are you becoming a slave to the music to where the... Sure, you, great. Yeah, it's a great comment. Yeah, what what I really think that music does have an impact. An impact. We can't say that it doesn't, and totally and maybe does. we just need to check ourselves and say what is the impact that this is having, and and at the same time lighten up and not be so critical of other people for what they're doing. Maybe there's something there that 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 really is. I mean, you you've said this so many times, Nate. You look at strikes a chord with them or harmonizes. How many times do you see these music terms that resonates with me? It just, it, music becomes almost this universal language. There's there's a lot totally. to it. And the thing is, is like scientifically, certain, certain harmonies like blow up a brain scan. You know what I mean? Like if you had sensors like, like measuring brain activity, it's... There's been study after study done of like, oh, yeah, certain types of things definitely um, inspire and some things definitely um, depress and and some things can rile you up and some things can mellow you out. Like all those things are true. And by the way, like the idea that you have to only have one of those things happening all the time takes away any sort of idea that like that a human being is so complex and nuanced which by the way so is god 
Mm-hmm. And and God got angry. Sorry to break that to anybody that doesn't want to think that that isn't also a divine emotion. Well, is <laughs> you know it, that's I mean? the thing. Isn't every emotion isn't it, he a, appropriate? Doesn't, doesn't divine? God encapsulate all of those things? Right. And and the wrath of God, the yes. anger of God, or the 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 sorrow of God when you see the heavens mourn over or souls that are lost or the fallen, all emotions are divine. I, I like the way you said that. It, it, divine emotion. And so the, the idea that like when when you're maybe in a, a a in a bummer mood yeah man there's times where I'm just like cool man play me some play me some music from some people singing from also some bum moods so that I don't feel like I'm the only one feeling bummed in this world mm-hmm. it makes me eventually feel better right there are times where it's fun. You got sporting events. You turn on something loud and fast and get the adrenaline going and then go and play your butt off. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just, it's like, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that I feel like in general we're changing kind of the overall conversation about moderation instead of like hard line, this is what you do and this is what you don't do. You know, that kind of has just been kind of cultural within all religions, but, you know, especially within our religion, the idea that it's like, you never do this, you never do that, and it's changing more to go, oh, yeah, all human beings are really different, (laughs) really, like, nuanced, (laughs) and what works maybe for everybody in certain things doesn't always work for somebody else. Yeah, and if I I were to sum up the whole, I guess, conversation of, of music from my point of view is... Even from the beginning, looking at Adam and Eve, not there long after, as soon as they start inventing instruments and whatnot, music has always been something that is extremely powerful. And it, and, and as you said, it's been used for good. God calling Emma to, to create a hymn book, the, the idea of worshiping and angels singing the praise of God, and it's been used for evil. In either case, it's extremely powerful. And as with anything that's powerful, let, let's make sure that we're you're leveraging it to the best for our lives, however that means. Yep, you're responsible. Yeah, totally. be responsible with what you do. And 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 it, that, that can mean all sorts of things. I'm not even going to try to define that. Which, by the way, that's a good idea. We, we should all follow what you just said. Instead of trying to define what that means for everybody individually— state what is what is a pretty general good idea to follow which is be responsible listen to listen to your emotions understand how you're feeling try to figure out try to figure out what things what things edify you what things don't you know what i mean yeah take and then stock at of that it point, every now and again at Just... that point cool now go you go make sense of that yep Hey, and Joseph Smith maybe said it the best when he said, I try to teach people correct principles and let them govern, let them govern themselves. themselves. That's exactly right. Okay, well, let's move to the part of the story where the cops get called. Okay. This, <laughs> it's a true story, though, by the way. I, I kind of feel bad about it. We had horns and everything, speaking of, oh. speaking of, the, speaking of all of, speaking of it, Satan inside of different instruments. Oh, boy. Sorry, other horn players. I'm just kidding. I love horns, but they were loud and we weren't very good. And we were really loud. And oh, man. The cops got called. Well, here, here the cops get called in this story, too. Can't wait. It says, When the children of Seth heard this noisy uproar and laughter in the camp of Cain's children, about 100 valiant men. 
Oh no. Yeah, that's quite the that's quite the uh, <laughs> the police force. About one hundred valiant men of them gathered and set their mind upon going down to the camp of the children of Cain. When Jared heard and began to know their words, he said, I implore you by Abel's innocent blood, do not go down from this holy mountain. Remember and think of the oaths which our father Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, and us swear. Enoch also told them, Listen, children of Seth, whoever breaks the commandment of Jared and his father's oaths and goes down from the mountain can never come back up again. Whoa. Yeah. And that, that puts you in a bind a little bit, right? Here you've got loud, noisy neighbors that are not letting you sleep. And not only that, but their influence is coming in and disturbing your families and disturbing your kids. And you get a hundred valiant men that say, we're going to put an end to this. And they're saying, wait, you've made covenants and going down is going to break those covenants. And and they, But they did not wish to listen to Jared's advice and the words of Enoch, they became bold, broke the commandment, and 100 valiant men went down. And I, you make the choices you make, but I, I, I don't know. Anyways, let, let, let's keep going. I, I was going to go somewhere with that, but I'm, I'm just going to keep did rolling. They go da- so did they get to go back up? This is what happened. Okay. When they saw the daughters of Cain were beautiful to behold and exposed themselves without shame, the sons of death, sons of death, the sons of Seth, excuse me, were inflamed by the fire of passion. Likewise, when Cain's daughters saw the beauty of the sons of Seth, they rushed on them like wild animals and soiled their bodies. Thus, Seth's sons destroyed themselves by fornication with the daughters of Cain. But when they wanted to ascend the holy mountain from which they had fallen, the stones of this holy mountain appeared to them like fire. God did not allow them to ascend to the place on top of the holy mountains because they had soiled themselves by the filth of fornication. After them, a multitude of others became bold, too, went down and also fell. Kind of a, kind of a crazy story. So, just to be clear, this is text in... In books, who were who wrote these? This this was from the book of the Cave of Treasures. I believe this was written by Ephraim the Syrian. Hmm. If I if I, but I mean like a historically what like three hundred years BC. Let me give you some context. Because the thing is, a lot of these stories I think can teach so many good things like the books that were included in the Bible, but I'm always just curious as to, like, what the source is, you know? Yes. Um, Let's see. In the heading of some Syriac manuscripts among the British Museum, upon which the present translation is based, the Cave of Treasures is attributed to Ephraim the Syrian, Mm. about 306 to 373 A.D. Dang it! Dang it! I thought I was gonna. I thought I was gonna even nail like the uh, general time frame. I said BC. I blew it. 
It's close, uh, but this time <laughs> seems out of question in the light of historical research, since Cave of Treasures is first quoted in the so-called Revelations of Pseudo-Methodius, an apocalyptic text written around the middle of the 7th century, and furthermore does not show any knowledge of Muslim conquest, it seems safe to assume that it was written before 630 A.D. Before Muhammad? Yep. Uh, the final redaction can be dated reasonably safe. So, yeah, it, it, it's pulling from earlier sources, but the but the text that they have is coming from there. And And remember... The oldest complete manuscript we have of the Bible is about 1100 A.D. Oh, really? Yeah. But we have... At least the, have a, the Old Testament. We have... A, we just have, like, shards of manuscript, though, from... Correct. And and that was before the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea yes, Scrolls take it Dead back even earlier. And, oh, and, crazy. Yeah, the Dead Sea Scrolls, I, I believe, takes us all the way back to 200 B.C. in some instances. That's what it was, 200 B.C. I think that's probably what I was thinking of as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. This is great. What other stories you got for us? Well, I, I just wanted to take this story okay. and and put it in context with some of the weird things that we see in the Bible and some of the weird things that we see in history. Okay. So we have this in the Bible, all it does is says that the sons of man came into the daughters of the sons of God went into the daughters of man and God was mad and upset. You're like, wait, why? What? It doesn't make sense. That's all it says in the Bible. But when you add this context to it, and you look at it, it was the falling of these sons of man, uh, sons of God that that were the righteous, if you will. It it makes a little bit more sense, and it says also in Genesis. I, maybe I should have just opened up the Bible. It says, and in those days there were giants in the land. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And you're like giants. That's weird. Well, the Hebrew word for giants is nephilim, right? And the I am is that masculine plural ending. Uh, nephil means to fall. So the fallen ones. Mm. So in that day, there were the fallen ones. So it's not just that they, it's, it, maybe they were giants, physically they were tall, but maybe they were, it was the day, like Jared, his name means to go down. Maybe it was the day that they went down. And it's interesting mm. that you associate this fall, not with just a spiritual fall, but physically they descended in, into a lower state of, of existence. And the other interesting thing is, it says that God was upset with the children of men so that he would shorten their days. But after that, we read about even all the way down to Abraham, who lived several hundred years, and he's saying he's going to shorten their days to less than a hundred years. Why is it that all of these people still lived several hundred of years after God says that? Well, you look at this story, if you had sons of God, they were like, in fact, in here they said they were um, gods, right? I have called you gods and the sons of the Most High, all of you. If you have a society that lives on top of a tall mountain who are called gods, who are essentially immortal in the sense that they live hundreds and hundreds of years, almost 900 years, and yet in the valley, people are living to less than 100 years. They're living to 60, 70 years old. They, they have several generations that die, and yet these guys are still living, right? And where do you see in history people that lived, gods that lived on a mountain while men lived on the valley below? And you see Mount Olympus, Greek mythology. And what happened in Greek mythology? The gods that lived on Mount Olympus got bored and came down from the mountain and had intercourse with the women. 
And in the Bible, it says, when the sons of God mingled with the daughters of men, men of renown, mighty men were born. So go back to Greek mythology. Zeus comes down from the mountain, and now Hercules is born. And you have this, these people that live hundreds of years versus these people that don't. Physically, there's some differences there. And now you have these mighty men, these heroes that are born from the fallen beings that came down from the mountain. So for me, looking at this story and reading it provides context that links the Bible to some of the mythologies that you see and some of the missing links that kind of connects and ties some of that history together. So, so for me, this was kind of a fascinating read. It's stuff I love. I love all those kind of interconnections. Is it any wonder then uh, that Pan was the one that had the pipe, the Pan pipes? Pan. He had the devil like a uh, oh, you're dancing right. Dancing around, playing on his little flute. You're right. I didn't even think of that. See, nobody likes the pipes, and nobody likes goats. <laughs> all right. Just kidding, all you pipers and goat farmers. I'm just kidding. I, I enjoy listening to some bagpipe songs. I, I enjoy one, but that but that's the that's the you're right. Like you hear one, and it's almost enough to like. No, but they're literally you can only play the bagpipes in one key. I'm pretty sure. Like you just drone one of because because the because one of like the little reeds coming out of the thing is just you don't you don't like you don't cover any holes, right? Like, you don't change the pitch of it. It just goes, and you just get that going. I went and saw a bagpipe performance one time down in uh, Springville or Spanish Fork or Payson. Uh huh. It's like seven, eight of these kids with these bagpipes. Just like the whole time. And then they, they're like, and it was just that one note for... 45 minutes and you're just like my goodness my goodness yeah it's hard to listen to over a long the thing is, of time. is again like at a funeral or something i'm like yeah man like like uh what's what's the tune that everybody always plays at the funeral on the bagpipes uh um oh man dang that's gonna bum me out that i forgot anyways <laughs> I it's a classic it's i know a classic. i know it's um I'm, I'm just as blank as i was earlier all right I feel bad. I should know this. I do know this. It's just totally escaped. Had I not had I not stopped to think about it. Anyways, for that I'm like, yeah, man, give me that. Give me the dudes in the kilts. Rock that bag. It's got pipe. its place. It's got its seasoning. But like totally any does. seasoning, if you if you put that seasoning on the wrong thing, it's not gonna taste good. All right. I'm dude, I'm with you. Okay. Uh, I thought this was interesting. This is still from the book of the Cave of Treasures. I'm just fast forwarding to the flood. Um, Noah's entrance into the ark took place on Friday in the blessed month of Lyre on the 17th of Friday. That's interesting. They said Friday twice, but we'll keep going. In the morning, the wild animals and cattle entered into the lower deck. At noon, the birds and all reptiles entered into the middle deck. And at sunset, Noah and all of his sons entered the eastern side of the ark while his wife and his son's wives entered on the ark's western side. Adam's body was put down in the middle of the ark, for all the mysteries of the church are foreshadowed in it. Inside, church women stayed on the western side and men on the eastern side, so that the men cannot see the women's faces, nor do the women see the faces of the men. Thus also, in the ark, 
the women were on the western side and the men on the eastern side. Adam's body, however, was put in the middle like the bima. And just as there was in silence between men and women in the church, so there was peace inside the ark between animals, birds, and reptiles. And, and I, I, I looked at this setting, and it seemed fascinating to me that you have this aisle down the middle, and men sat on one side, and women sat on the other side, and in the middle you had the coffin, if you will, the, the body of, of Adam. And, and to me, it, it, and the women couldn't see the men's faces, and the men couldn't see the women's faces, it, it reminded me of temple imagery. And the altar, an altar is, is built for sacrifice, right? And so we make the covenants on the altar, and the idea that the altar represents Christ's body, his death, his sacrifice is what makes those covenants possible. So here you have the altar where Christ died, representing his body. Yet yeah, in here, it's Adam who's there. His body is, is almost this image of an altar or, or the one that's going to come to redeem Adam. And then you had this this quiet reverence, and and it's almost creating, if you will, a temple setting for the ark. And you, and you have the waters of chaos, and you have this creation, and so you go back to the creation story, and and which is what we do with the with the temple, right? Well, here you have again this waters of chaos, and then there's going to be God creating order, and then there's going to be animals, and then all uh, man again in this garden paradise with animals and peacefully getting along. It's recreating or taking you back to paradise, back to Eden. It's awesome. It's amazing grace, by the way. That's it. I'm sorry, that was going to drive me nuts, and I, on the the uh, the handful of people that are going to be listening to this midweek were probably screaming at their uh, their radios. They, they're saying, you know, for they were like yelling, like this dude's supposed to be the expert, man. <laughs> Jason keeps calling him the expert. He can't even think of amazing grace on the back vibes. <laughs> Don't get upset with us. We're doing this for free, okay? That's true. <laughs> All right. Um, last story. So here's here's a question. Why isn't some of this stuff included in like the Old Testament? It's a good question. It's you know it's it's come down to discussions and, and people would look at it and say what is canonical, what is not. When did it? I mean, the Old Testament canon should have been established long before Ephraim the. The, the Syrian in 300 AD comes along, but you know you've got to have you've got to have these writings and these fragments. And Moses himself, when he puts together the the, the law, the the book of Moses, the law, the first five books of the Bible, he's not he's not just writing this from scratch, but he's got access to libraries and sources and fragments and writings. And and I think that's what people don't necessarily realize. You think of the Bible as just this very clean history of of this tradition that's been carried on over and over again. But there's all sorts of religious writings and fragments and some that got compiled and included. And this this idea of a canon that this measures up, it, it depends on a lot of different things. And, and does it agree theologically with thought at the time when whoever's discussing it? Or is there a disagreement theologically that this does not support what we think? So some things get included, some things don't. 
Um, one of the cool things uh, about this book I have is they list all of the non-scripture scriptures. And, and by that, I mean, in the Bible, they reference books. Is it not written in the book of the upright? Is it not written? And they mention it four or five times. And you're like, oh, well, the book of the upright, if it's written about in the Bible, should be part of the Bible. Where did that book go? And, and uh, the, the thing is, they did find a book labeled the book of the upright. And, and the guy was translating it. Here's the problem. Is in the 1800s, right before he finishes translating it and publishing it, a fraud writes a fake book of the upright and publishes it and gets all of this attention, and then it comes out to be this huge fraud. And so then everybody's spoiled on the idea. So now this guy finishes his translation, he's like, hey, I've got it. And then everyone's like, be quiet. We, we don't, we don't want to hear it. Oh, man, that's a bummer. Yeah. It's crazy though how like that little moment changed everything though, right? Like it's just funny how delicate little moments in history are for like the we all don't know about that book because right at the last minute, right before it was translated, some dude, some knucklehead, whatever, soured everybody on it and now it was just like it's a forgotten thing, you know. Yeah, it's not near as big as it could have been or it would have been. And and maybe that's by design, I mean, sure. you know. And it's interesting. We might not relate to it very as much, but it also happened in our time period. It's, especially as we're looking at Doctrine and Covenants, we think of Doctrine and Covenants as just this this clean, simple book that was written. But here's the thing: when Joseph Smith received a revelation, and before this was published into a book, people wanted to have that revelation, so they would ask for copies, and they would write their own copy. Mm. And we have we have different copies of the revelations based on translation or not translation because it's all English, right? But sometimes you'd transcribe it wrong, or you would, yeah. yeah sometimes it would be, you'd focus on something here, or you'd miss something there, or you'd copy the same line over. And so there are different versions of the of the revelations that we have in Doctrine and Covenants, and who decides which one is the most accurate. And sometimes we might have picked the wrong one, but looking back in hindsight, scholar, we look at it and say, oh, maybe we should have gone with this, or maybe this is more complete. This one has this person's handwriting versus this one's handwriting, and where does it come from? There's, there's an interesting story behind Doctrine and Covenants that matches that of your New Testament and your Old Testament, just these fragments and these manuscripts and trying to figure out what is going to be your authoritative source for the scripture. It's awesome. It's, it's good perspective. Um, and man, I, maybe I'll post this on the website rather than try to look for it. And, but, but what this has here is it'll quote all of the Bible verses that mention a book that is not in the Bible, and then it lists out every non-biblical biblical book, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's actually a pretty a pretty long list. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of kind of interesting that way. Um, trying to make sure I'm wise with time. I think we're I think we're running close to. Yeah, we can we could probably. But I know there's a lot of things that I wish I could still say. Um, well, then just yeah, just knock them out then. Okay, we're gonna go. Think of what's most important. All right, there, there's a Empalia Historica. There, there's a story it tells the story of David and Nathan, and and we know the story of David, right? 
I, I think most of us know the story of David. I thought we all... Isn't Nathan in the Bible, too? Nathan he sure the is. the that comes and tells him, like, yo, dog, you gotta chill. That's it. Okay, so here, here it is. So the Lord said to Nathan the prophet, go out and reprove King David for having committed adultery. The prophet said to the angel, I am afraid, lest perchance the king will not accept my rebukes and put me to death. That's a legitimate fear. Oh, for sure it is. Yeah, go tell the king he's wrong. Um, the angel of the Lord told him, Go ahead, for you will see me before you. And the prophet left for the king. As he was going in, he saw the angel holding in his hand the drawn sword and standing before the king. If he planned to resist the rebuke, the angel would kill him. So the prophet said, I have a case to make to you, my king. And the king said, state your case. The prophet had the following reply. A certain man owed 90, owned 99 lambs, and he sat with them and enjoyed being with them. But a poor man lived near him who had only one lamb, which ate from his table, drank from his cup, and slept at his knees. Now that wealthy man left behind the 99 lambs that he owned and enjoyed and took the one lamb of the poor man. I bring this case before you, my king. And the king replied, if the one who did this in my kingdom is found, I'll have his head. And the prophet answered, you are the one, my king, who did this. So the most gentle king immediately arose from the throne and made obeisance, saying, I have sinned against my Lord, I have sinned. When at that time the prophet saw the angel turn his sword away, he told the king, the Lord has taken away your transgression. Yeah, well, it's good. Yeah. What I wanted to focus on this, where... Where have you seen somebody leave the 90 and 9 and go after the 1? And I'd never thought of that before. And so it's interesting because in, in the Old Testament, it doesn't say 90 and 9. He says he had he had many sheep, and then he goes after the one sheep, right? And and so I I, I caught on to that, and, and I, I think he was making that connection with, with Christ in the New Testament when he was saying, Christ says, but... but <laughs> Christ is comparing himself to David. I left the 90 and 9 and went after the 1. Right? But David's David's leaving a different kind of 90 and 9. He's leaving 99 wives to go after one wife that he shouldn't be chasing, where Christ is leaving 99 saints, if you will, to look for the lost soul, which, which is very different. But he's almost like, by stating this, he's almost telling the Pharisees, I am David. I am the king. I come from David's land. I am the 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 what is it? The stem of Jesse. The 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 one that's going to come from David's line. I am the Messiah. I am the one who's going to leave the ninety nine and go after the one. So so it gives me a little bit of appreciation from that story that way. And I think of it like like this: as in Adam all shall die, even in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ comes to be a new Adam, if you will, to 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 take the role of Adam and reverse it and make things better. Well, in this case, he's taking the role of David and making things better. He's doing what David did, but he's doing it better. He's doing it perfectly. He's leaving the the 99 to save one, not to not to condemn. So it's it's kind of interesting that playoff. But as I was looking at the story too, um 
here you have this wealthy, powerful man. He's being compared to a king, and he has 99 sheep. And, and I was looking at shepherd sizes, and, and most shepherd, you're talking like 50 to 60 is a good size herd. The fact that he's got 99 makes him extremely wealthy on one end, where the guy that has one makes him extremely poor on the other end. If, if 50 is about average, this guy's doing super well for himself, and this guy's not doing so well. So then you go look at the Bible when he says, what manner of men of you would leave the 99 and go after the one? It's not like you have three sheep and you lost one. Then you're desperate to find one, right? But if you have such a large herd, you have 99 sheep, why would you chase the one? It, it's not... It, we, we look at it and think, oh, yeah, you know, he leaves the 99. He's a good shepherd. It's not... It's not out of necessity. It's out of love. It is out of love, and it's almost crazy. Like, nobody does that is the point. Yeah. And, and to put it in context, he takes the story even a little bit further, and he says, okay, there's, there's the woman that has 10 pieces of silver, right? And she loses one. Let me ask you, Nate, and let me ask anyone who's listening to this podcast. If you had $500 and you lost a $50 bill, which one of you would, would pull out the lanterns and, the, and the, the flashlights and whatever it takes, sweeping the floor and searching for that all night long, and as soon as you found it, call everyone you know and throw a huge party. Would you? Would you call Taking everybody out to lunch? Would you call me, Nate, and and have me come over to your house and celebrate the fact that you found a fifty dollar bill no, no, when I you wouldn't. had five hundred? No, but I mean, maybe I'm the maybe I'm the weird one, but no, I wouldn't do that. No, the cost of the party is more than the amount of yes. the money you lost. Yes, that's the point. Like we look at these stories and we think, oh yeah, no, it's supposed to be absurd. Because the Pharisees were looking at him, you're eating with sinners and publicans. And he's like, yeah, that does look absurd to you. You, you wouldn't do it. That's the point. Which one of you would, would call everybody and celebrate? And if you have 99 sheep, by the way, 100 sheep, and you find that, that one little lost one, which one of you is going to carefully put that over your shoulders and run into town and say, hey, look, everybody, I found my sheep. Yeah, yeah I know I've got 99 over there, but this sheep right here, it, it better have golden fleece if <laughs> if you react that way. That's funny. So, it, it, I don't know. Reading this gave me different appreciation for some of the parables in the I New like Testament that. as no, well. I mean, it's, you've, you've already got my brain racing. <laughs> yeah, it, it just... It, there's some cool things. And, and maybe I'll just kind of wrap up the... Uh, wrap up the, the, the Pseudepigrapha by saying... There is, like Joseph Smith said with the Apocrypha, there is some things that are true, there's some things that are translated correctly, and there's some value in there. And there's some things in there that are just crazy. (laughs) I don't know. There is some value, but know this, you're probably going to swim through a lot of weird stuff before you find those stones. Okay, last thought, and and I I promise I'll end this. Um, This was just kind of a weird random thing I thought I'd tag in at the end of the show. I've I've been trying to get healthy and and get to the gym a little bit more often, going going and exercising five times a week, and uh, just 40 minutes to an hour. I don't have a ton of time, so usually less than an hour. But, But I decided to add up all of the weights that I'm lifting. And it's not like I'm doing a ton. I'm just doing like three sets of five 
right? Repetitions. And then maybe four different exercises and that's it. And I'll run a mile and a half or something. But as I started adding up each one of those reps and and for five days a week, it came out to 68,000 pounds. And, and, that seems like a lot. Like if someone were to ask me to go move 68,000 pounds, I would laugh and say that that's ridiculous. Like it's not going to happen. And yet, and just taking less than an hour, five times a week, breaking it up like that is actually pretty easy. And it's not that much effort. It wasn't all that much, but it, but it amounts to something and it changes us. Right. And sometimes it's easier to notice the physical transformation of doing something like that over time. So, so I thought that was interesting, but then it made me think, well, if I'm studying my scriptures and diving into my scriptures an hour a day or, or up to, you know, sometimes 10 hours a week, what, what's that doing to me intellectually or spiritually? You know, that's, just, that's equivalent. If, if five hours a week is giving me 68,000 pounds physically, then doing 10 hours a week of, of studying and, and thinking and reflecting and, and trying to search for God, it's giving me like 130,000 pounds of of, of spiritual development. It, it just seemed kind of fascinating to me because we say it all the time, like the, the small and simple things or the little things that matter, and, and they don't seem that big. But putting it in context with, with that a massive amount of weight that you end up moving at the end of a week, I, I just thought that was kind of a, a cool note to end up on. I mean, what what do we focus our time on? And maybe saving just that 30 to 40 minutes a week adds up in significant ways that you could never predict. I love that. It's great. All right. Thanks for hanging out with me on this uh, this bonus episode. Bonus episode. What are we talking about next week again? Next week is Doctrine and Covenants 93, Seeing God. Kind of a common theme in these last few sections. Oh, yeah. Okay. Can't wait. All right. Well, uh, well, I guess I'll see you in a couple days. Yeah. <laughs> Won't be long for us. All right. See ya. See ya.